the first examples of deep and tender sentiment in the lyrical poetry of the last century. Cowper found relief from the black thoughts that beset him only in an ordered round of quiet household occupations. He corresponded indefatigably, took long walks through the neighborhood, read, sang, and conversed with Mrs. Unwin and his friend Lady Austin, and amused himself with carpentry, gardening, and raising pets, especially hares, of which gentle animals he grew very fond. All these simple tastes, in which he found for a time a refuge and a sheltered happiness, are reflected in his best poem, The Task, 1785. Cowper is the poet of the family affections, of domestic life, and rural retirement. The laureate of the fireside, the tea-table, the evening lamp, the garden, the greenhouse, and the rabbit coop. He draws with elegance and precision a chair, a clock, a harpsichord, a barometer, a piece of needlework. But Cowper was an outdoor as well as an indoor man. The only landscape was tame, a fat agricultural region, where the sluggish owls wound between ploughed fields and the horizon was bounded by low hills. Nevertheless, Cowper's natural descriptions are at once more distinct and more imaginative than Thompson's. The task reflects also the new philanthropic spirit, the enthusiasm of humanity, the feeling of the brotherhood of men to which Rousseau had given expression in France, and which issued in the French Revolution. In England this was the time of Wilberforce, the anti-slavery agitator, of Whitefield, the eloquent revival preacher, of John and Charles Wesley, and of the evangelical and Methodist movements which gave new life to the English church. John Newton, the curate of Olney, and the keeper of Cowper's conscience, was one of the leaders of the evangelicals, and Cowper's first volume of Table Talk and Other Poems, 1782, written under Newton's inspiration, was a series of sermons in verse, somewhat intolerant of all worldly enjoyments such as hunting, dancing, and theatres. God made the country and man made the town, he wrote. He was a moralizing poet, and his morality was sometimes that of the invalid and the recluse. Byron called him a coddled poet, and indeed there is a suspicion of gruel and dressing-gowns about him. He lived much among women, and his sufferings had refined him to a feminine delicacy. But there is no sickliness in his poetry, and he retained a charming playful humor displayed in his excellent comic ballad, John Gilpin. And Mrs. Browning has sung of him, how, when one by one sweet sounds and wandering lights departed, he bore no less a loving face, because so broken-hearted. At the close of the year 1786, a young Scotchman named Samuel Rose called upon Cowper at Olney, and left with him a small volume, which had appeared at Edinburgh during the past summer, entitled Poems Chiefly in the Scottish Dialect by Robert Burns. Cowper read the book through twice and though somewhat bothered by the dialect, pronounced it a very extraordinary production. This momentary flash, as of an electric spark, marks the contact not only of the two chief British poets of their generation, but of two literatures. Scotch poets like Thompson and Beatty had written in southern English, and as Carlyle said, in vacuo, that is, with nothing specially national in their work. Burns's sweet though rugged Doric first secured the vernacular poetry of his country a hearing beyond the border. He had, to be sure, a whole literature of popular songs and ballads behind him, and his immediate models were Alan Ramsay and Robert Ferguson, but these remained provincial, while Burns became universal. He was born in Ayrshire, on the banks of Bonnie Doon, in a clay biggin not far from Alloway's old haunted kirk, the scene of the witch-dance in Tamashanter.
His father was a hard-headed, God-fearing tenant-farmer, whose life and that of his sons was a harsh struggle with poverty. The crops failed, the landlord pressed for his rent. For weeks at a time the family tasted no meat. Yet this life of toil was lightened by love and homely pleasures. In The Cotter's Saturday Night, Burns has drawn a beautiful picture of his parents' household, the rest that came at the week's end, and the family worship about the wee bit ingle Blinkin Bonnily. Robert was handsome, wild, and witty. He was universally susceptible, and his first songs, like his last, were of the lasses. His head had been stuffed in boyhood with tales and songs concerning devils, ghosts, fairies, brownies, witches, warlocks, spunkies, kelpies, elf-candles, deadlights, etc., told him by one Jenny Wilson, an old woman who lived in the family. His ear was full of ancient Scottish tunes, and as soon as he fell in love, he began to make poetry as naturally as a bird sings. He composed his verses while following the plough or working in the stackyard, or at evening balancing on two legs of his chair and watching the light of a peat-fire play over the reeky walls of the cottage. Burns' love-songs are in many keys, ranging from strains of the most pure and exalted passions, like A Fond Kiss and To Mary in Heaven, to such loose ditties as When January Winds and Green Grow the Rushes O. Burns liked a glass almost as well as a lass, and at Mochline, where he carried on a farm with his brother Gilbert after their father's death, he began to seek a questionable relief from the pressure of daily toil and unkind fates in the convivialities of the tavern. There, among the wits of the Mochline club, farmers' sons, shepherds from the uplands, and the smugglers who swarmed over the west coast, he would discuss politics and farming, recite his verses, and join in the singing and ranting, while boozin' o'er the nappy and gettin' foul and unco happy. To these experiences we owe not only those excellent drinking songs, John Barleycorn and Willie Brew to peck em out, but the headlong fun of Tam O'Shanter and the visions, grotesquely terrible, of Death and Dr. Hornbrook, and the dramatic humor of the jolly beggars. Cowper had celebrated the cup which cheers but not inebriates. Burns sang the praises of the Scotch drink. Cowper was a stranger to Burns' high animal spirits and his robust enjoyment of life. He had affections, but no passions. At Mochline, Burns, whose irregularities did not escape the censure of the Kirk, became involved, through his friendship with Gavin Hamilton, in the controversy between the Old Light and New Light clergy. His Holy Fair, Holy Tulsey, Two Herds, Holy Willie's Prayer, and Address to the Uncle Good are satires against bigotry and hypocrisy. But in spite of the rollicking profanity of his language, and the violence of his rebound against the austere religion of Scotland, Burns was at bottom deeply impressible by religious ideas, as may be seen from his Prayer Under the Pressure of Violent Anguish, and Prayer in Prospect of Death. His farm turned out a failure, and he was on the eve of sailing for Jamaica when the favor with which his volume of poems was received stayed his departure, and turned his steps to Edinburgh. There the peasant poet was lionized for a winter season by the learned and polite society of the Scotch capital, with results in the end not altogether favorable to Burns' best interests. For when society finally turned the cold shoulder on him, he had to go back to farming again, carrying with him a bitter sense of injustice and neglect. He leased a farm in Ellisland in 1788, and some friends procured his appointment as exciseman for the district. 
but poverty, disappointment, irregular habits, and broken health clouded his last years, and brought him an untimely death at the age of thirty-seven. He continued, however, to pour forth songs of unequaled sweetness and force. The man sank, said Coleridge, but the poet was bright to the last. Burns is the best of British songwriters. His songs are singable, they are not merely lyrical poems. They were meant to be sung, and they are sung. They were mostly set to old Scottish airs, and sometimes they were built up from ancient fragments of anonymous popular poetry, a chorus, or stanza, or even a single line. Such are, for example, Old Lang Syne, My Heart's in the Highlands, and Landlady Count the Lawan. Burns had a great warm heart. His sins were sins of passion, and sprang from the same generous soil that nourished his impulsive virtues. His elementary qualities as a poet were sincerity, a healthy openness to all impressions of the beautiful, and a sympathy which embraced men, animals, and the dumb objects of nature. His tenderness toward flowers and the brute creation may be read in his lines To a Mountain Daisy, To a Mouse, and the old farmer's New Year's morning salutation to his old mare Maggie. Next after love and good fellowship, patriotism is the most frequent motive of his song. Of his national anthem, Scots what ha ye Wallace bled. Carlyle said, So long as there is warm blood in the heart of a Scotchman, or man, it will move in fierce thrills under this war ode. Burns's politics were a singular mixture of sentimental Toryism with practical democracy. A romantic glamour was thrown over the fortunes of the exiled Stuarts, and to have been out in forty-five with the young pretender was a popular thing in parts of Scotland. To this purely poetic loyalty may be attributed such Jacobite ballads of Burns as Over the Water to Charlie. But his sober convictions were on the side of liberty and human brotherhood, and are expressed in The Twa Dogs, The First Epistle to Davy, and A Man's a Man for a That. His sympathy with the Revolution led him to send four pieces of ordnance taken from a captured smuggler as a present to the French Convention, a piece of bravado which got him into difficulties with his superiors in the excise. The poetry which Burns wrote, not in dialect, but in the classical English, is in the stilted manner of his century, and his prose correspondence betrays his lack of culture by his constant lapse into rhetorical affectation and fine writing. End of Part 1, Chapter 6